0: It was. It was in May of 2015 is when we had actually actually released that one. But we had. I think we were recording in March. March. Something like that. So yeah. So
1: it's been on two and a half years. Yeah. A lot has changed. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So that's that's the whole point of doing this.
0: Uh, It's a good thing we're not recording podcasts this week because I am just a little bit under weather. But just to talk a little bit about today's release, we have a same guest that we had um, back on episode 13. A lot has changed since then, so it's going to be good to see how things are going at Angel's Envy. In addition, if you don't know much about Kyle, he's got a killer collection of booze and cigars. We hit on a bunch of great topics this time. So if you haven't done so yet, go listen to episode 13 and then come back here. We also recorded Kyle last night at the Kentucky Derby Museum Legend series, and you can expect that to come out sometime in the future. We're working on some things behind the scenes, and we can't wait to share it with you all, including a brand new t-shirt design for our Patreon supporters, so stay tuned for that. If you haven't done so already, and you wanna get every new podcast release beamed straight to your inbox, make sure you sign up for our listserv. Go to bourbonpursuit.com, scroll down just a little bit, And sign up to join our listserv, and you're going to get emailed every single time a new podcast is released. At the same time, make sure you're all subscribing on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. YouTube is actually growing a lot in popularity, so we're glad people love to see the videos that we're pushing out. With that, enjoy this week's episode. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. welcome back to the episode of the bird pursuit podcast the official podcast of Urban kenny and ryan coming back to you again with another guest that we had but actually it was back in the teens and it's it's at uh one of the the great new i wouldn't say great new i mean actually it's great new (laughs) new the brand's been around but it's a newer distillery that has been uh etched its way onto whiskey row and maybe whiskey rows further that way but it's in downtown Louisville, close yep. enough. But uh, I'm excited to actually talk to our guest today because it's good to get an update of how things have changed over the past two years since the last time we'd actually talked to them. Yeah, we've been, here in Louisville, we've been seeing this distillery being built for quite
2: some time. And uh, it, this is my first time walking in and I was like blown away. You're like, this is like the nicest, cleanest distillery like coolest distiller I've ever been in. Like, holy shit. <laughs>
0: I mean, they I think they
2: mopped the mop the floors and everything. <laughs> oh, I know there right wasn't a speck of dust or dirt. Like normally you're like you know, jumping over like Grease guns and like you <laughs> or like, know gas cans, uh, not gas cans, but you know you know what I mean. Just
0: equipment everywhere at you know, the other distilleries, or they got you know they got barn cats laying around everywhere, or something yeah. like that. So yeah, it's it's tough to it's tough to find that, but you know this was this distillery is also built with the purpose that they knew it was going to be a huge visitor attraction. So that's that's one of the uh, unique concepts to it that I really like is that. Everything was built in the way that they know they want to do tours through it. They want to be able to show people the experience. They want to be able to, um, you know, give them the opportunity to be able to walk around, look at the fermenters, touch them, smell them, dip their hands. in mean, I don't really know what they do here, right? But one day we'll find out. One day we'll do a tour here. Yeah. So I want to go ahead and introduce our guest today. So we have Kyle Henderson. Kyle was back on episode thirteen. For anybody that doesn't know, Kyle is the production manager at Angels NV Distillery. So Kyle, welcome back.
1: Welcome uh, thanks back. Thanks for having me. Good, to, good to be back. It's, you said this is episode one. It's we're up there, hundred thousand. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you've, it's been a, it's been a while, so mm. I'm I'm glad
0: to be back. Good. So I, I kind of want to give people um a little bit of a taste about you know again. I don't want to say like go go listen to it again, but you know, people that are just now joining the podcast, they want to know more about you. They want to know more about Angels Envy. So kind of talk
1: about you, how you came up in the ranks, what you do here, all that kind of good stuff. I was fortunate enough to be uh, more or less born into this one uh, very very lucky there you know a lot of people spend a lot of time looking around for jobs applying here and there um, I actually didn't want to do this because my family did this you know my grandfather did this um, I thought I was cool but uh, you know I wanted to go into medicine I wanted to be and orthopedic surgeon, um, work you know, sports medicine type things. Those nasty breaks you see. <laughs> Not hip I replacements. No, nah, yeah, no hip replacements, no. <laughs> yeah. The, the you know, the tibia snaps <laughs> on the basketball yeah. court. That's I was like, yeah, that, ex, it sounds oh, horrible, gosh. but that excites me. So, <laughs> so like the say, Teddy Bridgewater yeah, knee maybe yeah, blow that, up those. That yep. was, I was about to say, those are the videos you see. Oh, I, was, just, I, I cringe. Oh yeah. And when you're, when you're, Leg is now at a 90 degree angle. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of stuff. Like Kevin oh, Ware stuff. Interesting. <laughs> Kevin Ware. Yeah. That was a pretty bad one. Though. Yeah. That was a pretty bad one. If anybody that was, they
0: just listening to this, not watching it, uh, you guys should have just seen the, like the, it was like a half crack of a <laughs> smile. He was on He was like, I really, I really love this stuff. But he tried to hold himself back. So I'll, I'll let you keep the Of course. course.
1: <laughs> so uh, my dad approached me, I guess it would have been the junior year of, uh, while I was down at FSU. So I, w- I went to Florida State. Um, and he approached me to come up for a summer and kind of give him a hand. Um, you know, they just needed some more or less some bodies to get involved. And he said, "You know, come up. We're gonna we're gonna fill some barrels." I had heard him talking about this idea for a while, um, but I didn't. You know, wasn't sure if that was going to be my my bag. You know, whether it was going to be what I wanted to do. Uh, so I came up and we uh, we talked about it. Did some experiments in the garage. You know, everybody talks about bathtub gin and everybody's, you know, experiments in the bathtub. I mean, this, this brand was created out of an idea and out of some experiments that was, that were literally done in my dad's garage, <laughs> you know, almost 10 years ago. I thought you were about to say literally uh, out of a bathtub. Yeah. No, no, not out of the <laughs> bathtub. No, it was in the garage. We, you know, we, we tried to keep all of the alcohol fumes outside. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I came up, gave a, gave some assistance on that, went back to school and about, uh, October, November of that that semester, I guess it would have been my senior year. Uh, I went. Uh, what am I doing? Packed up all my shit and left. Uh, <laughs> moved back to Louisville, and um, so here I am now. You know, kind of go through all the motions there. Um, started doing more things in the garage. Um, we started getting a little a little office out in Crestwood, um, which is where my parents had lived at the time. Uh, so about about ten miles outside of town, northeast side of town. We didn't have a distillery. We we didn't even really have an idea of building a distillery. It was still in the process of maybe we can build a brand. Maybe um, you know my grandfather at this point had gotten involved. Uh, my dad had convinced him to come out of retirement, and I think one of the things that that really helped was the idea of. Building this legacy for the family, you know, it wasn't just my grandfather doing something again. It was he gets to work with the son, and then over time, work with myself. You know, as his grandson, to, to kind of do something neat, unique, um, almost his culmination of his entire career could become this, and we think it has, you know, done pretty decently at that. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's, not, it's not okay. <laughs> just a smidge. Yeah.
0: So um, at that point, were you all in? I mean, did Ooh, you, yeah. when you said you packed up your shit and came like, back here, or is it still kind of like on the on the fence and you're like, I could guess, I guess know, I could do an internship or do it for or, a year yeah, or two? I
1: was still kind of thinking, you know, I, I, was, I enjoyed it and I had a lot of fun, but it wasn't a full-time job. You know, I, I'd work a week and then I was managing a Mexican restaurant, actually. <laughs> like, uh, we don't need you this And week. bartending. <laughs> And I mean, we didn't, especially when we first filled our port, our very first port barrels, I guess that would have been August of 2010, we filled, you know, like 70 port barrels. And then we went home and didn't do anything for like three months. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, you know, it, it was, for me, it was more of a, oh, this is fun. Now let me go back to my job. Yeah. And it was like that for several years, even, you know, as the brand started, maybe we spent some more time, you know, we dumped some barrels, uh, we'd fill the port barrels and we'd wait. And then we dumped the port barrels or, we, or I guess when the brand started, we thought we would dump the port barrels in October of that, of 2010, um, kind of the story behind the cork. Uh, we have expression 1010 branded onto the cork because we were so confident that a three-month finish would be perfect. Uh, we were gonna bottle it in October. It'd be a nice 10 you know, October of 2010, 1010, really cool brand story. And we went to go start pulling barrels in October. And my grandfather more or less said, nope, not ready. You guys are gonna have to wait. <laughs> And everyone went, well, we ordered 100,000 corks. (laughs) (laughs) They were expensive. Can we bottle it like at the end of the month? So we looked again, you know, October 20th, something like that. By the time we could actually get it in the bottle, nope, it's not ready. Turns out March of 2011, it was finally (laughs) ready. So almost seven months later, um, we actually bottled it. And, you know, like I said, we had had already bought those corks. And it's kind of become a... um, Collector's, collectors. item. Well, yeah. collector's item, but it also, you know, the story of the brand. You, you know, everybody and their mother thought it'd be ready in October, and it wasn't. And and that's kind of a, a tagline for the brand. It's not fi- It's not f- complete until it's finished, I think. Yeah, like, that's what, what, what your says. dad said, yeah. So, you know, we've we've taken that to heart. And, you know, if it wasn't ready, it wasn't ready. Marketing and finance and, you know, all the people scrambling around for money or whatever, be damned. It. it when we're ready to put it out, we're ready to put it out. What? Um. I'm sorry. No, and, that, and that's kind of enveloped the entire brand capacity there.
2: So, so what what convinced you? Or what was that turning point? Where, you're like, all right, I'm going to do this. This is where, where I want to take my career for from now on,
0: and not do medicine or Mexican restaurants. You know, I mean, this week because we could talk about how we can make a, a sick quesadilla if you really want to just go <laughs> yeah. ahead and turn it. If you know
1: really how to do that, too. Uh huevos rancheros or huevos con chorizo. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, like, yeah. I'm a <laughs> no big huevos rancheros. <laughs> yeah, I like yeah. You're talking oh, yeah, about working in, the, working in the back of the house <laughs> with those guys who don't cook the Tex-Mex you're eating yeah. and eating some real food. They like enchiladas too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, honestly, the one of the, it, not so much a, like a like a moment in time, but a collection of events that happened made me realize, you know, I, I had more fun and enjoyed this more than, than anything else I was doing. Um, we were at a co-packer, so we didn't have our own facility at the time, so we more or less gave the rights to bottle our product to another supplier. And my job was to actually develop into this over the course of doing the first bottling uh, until, you know, we were bottling more or less every month that that the supplier was uh, eventually to manage the supplier, um, help them develop and maintain our quality specifications, filtration, the barrel blending, selecting barrels to be blended and dumped and into port barrels, port barrels to be dumped, all of the, uh, the specifications for proofing and then help them on the bottling line, you know, give them assistance there. You know, they're their own company, of course, but um, I was fortunate enough that we were early enough in their life cycle that they would allow me on site every single day. And being able to experience working with the people that got their hands dirty, you know, literally reaching your, you know, elbow deep into a tank because, oh shit, I just dropped that screw into there. <laughs> <laughs> uh to, uh, it's fine. It's to, alcohol. It'll it's, burn it'll, it'll It was burn a stainless screw, I promise. <laughs> My quality guys probably listen to this going, oh, God, no, Mike, that was years and years ago, long before you came. <laughs> um, but having the opportunity to, you know, kind of see what people think of, like, the backwoods. You know, it was down in Barstown, Kentucky. The people are down to earth. They they taught me a lot about hospitality and kind of what the industry was about. That was that was a good start. And some of the fun we had, you know, I, I was already down there. We were bottling our product and they were doing other products as well, getting other things ready to process. They had more than one bottling line. Um, So this is, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. Uh, (laughs) They were unloading a tanker of tequila for another client. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, kind of a foray into the spirits industry for me. Um, You know, I had worked at the Mexican restaurant. I knew what tequila was, but this was a really nice reposado tequila they were going to bottle for somebody. So they were unloading a tanker into... Uh, some ISO totes, basically a, a big metal tank that can be moved with the forklift. And they'd hook it up to the, the tote, turn the pump on, pump it over, fill it up, shut the pump off, disconnect, go to the next tote. So I was one of the guys helping them disconnect, just giving them a hand. I was there, you know, I wasn't, wasn't being paid. I wasn't involved in the brand or anything. Well, the g- genius that I was, I decided, oh, there, you know, there was tequila in this hose. Let me smell this, the hose that's connected <laughs> to the tanker. And I'm smelling it. And the driver's job is to run the pump. And <laughs> oh, no. so he hadn't turned the pump all the way off, so it was starting to slowly feed out. And he goes to flip the pump to put it in reverse, because you can actually go forward or reverse on this truck pump. Well, instead of going reverse, he went forward out of a six-inch line that can probably move, I don't know, 100 gallons a minute into my face <laughs> as like I'm a, sniffing. It's like a fire hose. As I'm sniffing, yeah, basically a giant fire hose. As I'm sniffing this, oh, this tequila smells great. Just a, oh a hundred gallons or so a minute of tequila into my lungs, into my nose, into my eyes, and I remember hopping up and down, unable to breathe. The the processing uh, manager who was there rolling on the ground, <laughs> laughing his ass off. I bless my ass. Right? Uh, I, I thought I was going to die. I oh. had I had tequila in my lungs. My eyes the next day had crusted shut from like all of the, <laughs> the like you, sugar and you know all of the and all, all of the stuff from the evaporate the the evaporated alcohol. Oh. Little anecdotes like that. Looking back, man, that was the stupidest thing I've ever done. But just fun little things yeah. that you it's know part of
2: the story. Yeah, the, it's just part of the the, the, the whole.
1: You know, the whole evolution of one of the reasons why I enjoy my job so much. And that kind of morphed into all right, I was managing the co-packer. Um, at some point, you know, we more or less outgrew them. They had other clients, they had a supply and support as well. And our demands and their time became so much that it made more sense for us to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's really when it when it set in. You know, it was more or less a full-time job for me at that point. Um, you know, I was doing bottling management with the co-packer. of my time, you know, 25% of my time I travel, I go visit distributors, uh, go do market visits, dinners, trade shows, whiskey fest type things, uh, do, you know, things like this, interviews. Um, And we decided to open our own bottling facility. So I guess that would have been 2014, started early 20, maybe the end of 2013, early 2014. We moved through the process. We are looking for buildings. Um, you you know, we knew we wanted to be downtown. We just didn't have a property yet. And, um, so we we looked at leasing some space and eventually we found a space that used to be an old paint factory downtown. Um, so they had dealt with solvents and a lot of, you know, high proof or not high proof, but very flammable chemicals, Mm -hmm. um, so why up, throw bread in there, right? Not a not a terribly different process as far as a safety standpoint as, right. as alcohol production. So for, for anybody who understands, you know, electrical safety, uh, class one, division one, or, or explosion-proof electronics, that building was already fitted for that. So we were able to move in and for relatively cheap costs, bring it up to current code, um, do some cleanup. It was still dirty and grungy. It was an older building, um, but, you know, we were able to get product in there and, and and control what we were able to do. Basically, do what we're already doing with our own people instead of hiring a contractor to do Mm -hmm. it. Um, So when I was given that job as the blending and bottling manager, that's when it kind of came a realization of, well, it's been, I guess, you know, three years at that point. Oh, this brand's successful and we're hiring our own people and we're, you know, getting space. Um, you know, are getting offices, and right around that time, the property that we're in now, the distillery here in downtown, we we started a negotiation with the state to purchase it from them. You know, going through that whole design process of this distillery. Oh, well, this this is this is serious. This isn't just a you know another crazy idea my my dad and my <laughs> grandfather had. Yeah, um, but it seemed so talk, to work talk out. Talk about yeah. you, your dad seems like an interesting
2: character, like with crazy ideas. Like was he, he always like definition. that growing up, and were you like? when he
1: brought this up, we're going to make our own whiskey. And you're like, this is that just one of your, another crazy ideas. He is the definition of an <laughs> entrepreneur. He was one of those guys that was way into computers before computers are mainstream. Um, and still to this day, he can take down and rebuild a computer and, you know, build it from scraps and parts. And, um, you know, he always kind of floated around and, and did different things. And, um, he one of the reasons he got into this was not only was his dad doing this but you know he was consulting for some people he got involved with the ADI the American Distilling Institute and and kind of really wanting to um, to get a foot in the industry so he was helping other people do exactly what we did which is start a brand do some planning you know help them design and open a distillery and i think finally one day it clicked and he, you know he was working with my grandfather my grandfather would give some some really you know masterful experience behind all of these things. And I think one day it went, well, wait a minute, why am I not doing this for ourselves, for the family? And that's kind of where the whole concept of this brand came about. Um, So I guess another question for
0: you is, when did you really get into bourbon, right? Because let's, let's, you know, let's stay off the Angel's Envy track.
1: 21.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, my my lawyers aren't here, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. But I mean, I I mean, I know you've, you've I've seen some things online. You've got a decent collection and stuff like that. So kind of talk about like when you actually got into bourbon, uh, you know, understanding more about the spirits and actually enjoying them more, uh, you know, just outside stuff that your grandfather was making.
1: Um, so, uh, you know, while my grandfather was in the industry, I, you know, I was a young, you know, preteen, teenager years. Um, didn't really have a, an appreciation for it. Um, and even after starting this, it was kind of cool. Like I was, it was a cool thing. Almost, almost more of an ego thing. Oh, look at me. I'm important. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't until, oh man, probably I met Gene. Um, he's, he's the, the guy that runs warehouse liquors in the loop in Chicago. Um, really cool liquor store up there. I met him, I guess it would have been late 2012, maybe whiskey fest or something like that. And he pulled out some samples of some really cool stuff. And I went, oh man, that's that's I've never tried that before. I don't think it was even bourbon. I think it was just, I think it was rum or something like that. Because we were looking at the rum. Actually, I'm almost positive it was rum because we were trying different rums to do the rye finishing. And he pulled all these samples and he had such a great passion for what he was just trying to more or less give us the experience for. You know, he wasn't getting any benefit out of it other than, oh, here's some new rums it tastes. Awesome. Um, Seeing that passion. And then he also man, this was 2012. So he also had about a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle on the shelf for like retail, actual retail (laughs) price. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, 160 bucks. I'll buy that. That looks cool. Cause you had, you know, we had heard about it. People every now and then talked and bought it, bought it, um, actually that was one of the first bottles that I purchased that started in my collection. Um, so from there I went into, well, we're going to do competitive tastings to see how angels and me compare. So, you know, we did the Woodfords and the old foresters, had that pedigree of my grandfather, great spirits in their own right. Uh, we got into the, you know, Knob Creek, all the beam, small batch collection, uh, four roses, the wild turkey stuff, heaven Hill, all of the Sazerac, Barton, Heaven or Barton uh, Buffalo trace, all of that. Mm-hmm. And and the, the interest started growing from there. And, you know, people don't realize there was what, nine distilleries in Kentucky 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And how many brands were there? (laughs) There's still a ton. There's still a ton, but there was a ton of, you know, relative to how many there are now, not as many, but still a ton for nine distilleries. And they're all different. And it was really cool to see how even sometimes the same mash bill, the same distillation, maybe just a different way of blending or different proof made such a different product. And that really interested, interested me. Um, So I got from there to all right. Now I got to try all some of these old prohibition whiskeys. So we went to the master distillers auction for the bourbon festival and started fighting with uh, Drew uh, Colesbeam from Willett and some of the guys from Jack Rose over old prohibition bottles. And then it went to estate sales. And then it was well, you know, now with the bourbon boom, all these other brands. So you know, buy a bottle here, buy a couple bottles there. Oh, we're gonna open them and do a competitive tasting with you know with the marketing team and. We drink three ounces out of that bottle. So, well, then I've got, you know, a, a three-quarters of a full bottle of something. Okay, cool. Let's keep doing this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, to the yeah. point where— it's, it's a tax write-off, yeah, too, yeah. right? It's even Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. Research and development. r and D, R and d But it—so it, <laughs> the benefit is it allows us to taste all of these cool things and, and build this cool collection. And when people talk about these things, oh, I wish I had a taste of X, Y, Z, you know— Elmer Teeley, as an example, after yeah. Elmer passed away, that stuff was hot off the shelf. You know, we've got bottles from five, six, seven, eight years ago, multiple, I guess, different batches. And it's kind of cool to see the taste progression between stuff from, you know, when he was alive to stuff that's being produced now in his, na- in his name. It is a little different and it's kind of neat to see that. Um, but only because I've been involved long enough and we've built this repertoire and built this competitive tasting set that we're able to do that comparison. Um you know, And I actually, I inherited a lot of stuff from my grandfather. So I got to taste a lot of the whiskeys he worked on in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. So a lot of Suntory whiskeys when Brown Foreman and Suntory did some partnerships together. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, some of the the whiskey that was made or barreled at the first, uh, the reopening of the George Washington Distillery, which I was actually fortunate enough last year to go and do, uh, well, I guess it would have been the 10th anniversary of that opening to the public. Um, we were invited back to that to to go do the old distillation techniques and mashing in and you know open open boilers and open fire pot steels, which still baffles me how they didn't blow themselves up, you know, <laughs> yeah. two hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I'm sure they did. You just don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, you just didn't that's hear what OSHA was for exactly. Um, so all of that history kind of kind of got me the push too, and you know now I've got like 1,600 bottles of alcohol in my basement. Wow. it's a, yeah. a lot of bottles. It's uh, pretty good, though. That's more than oh, kidding. No, know, you got me beat. Then I, but it's not all whiskey. By at least three Well, four. most of it's whiskey, but then you get into the scotch, and you're like, oh, okay, let's try a bunch of different scotches. And then, well, we're doing this rum, so let's try all these rums. So i got like 130 rums in my basement. And then, of course, we were purchased by Bacardi, I guess, two, three years ago, 2015. They even got um, more rums. So, <laughs> you know, oh, I, I got to go buy all their products. We get a product allocation every year. The first couple of years, you get the, you know, the Bacardi, the superior, the white, you get the gold, the, the eight, you know, you pick up some of the tequilas, you get some Gregoose and you're like, well, now I still have every, money every year and I don't need any more vodka. <laughs> All right, let's get the duce, the cognacs, some of the scotches, the single malts they're involved in. All right, now I bought those. Now let's get the high-end Facundo rums, the XMO and the Neo and the, you know, the really small quantity, super premium things they've come out with. And well, now I'm out of Bacardi stuff. What other competitors? Let's go to, you know, buy Diageo scotches and let's go buy, you know, Constellations brands and everything else. And it's really cool because I know they're doing the same thing to us. They're they're trying our things. We all support each other. And then it goes into, well, all right, let's, let's get some wine. And oh, there's some barrel-finished, uh, yeah, <laughs> barrel-finished beers. So I've got yeah. a bunch of... Goose Island stuff in my basement that's been aging over a couple different releases. When do you become friends? Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then and then you get into cigars. I mean, you know, I actually met Jonathan Drew, who uh, was the owner of Drew Estate, and they brought mm-hmm. him back as the president for Drew Estate Cigars. Twenty, I guess that would have been twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. I met him at an event over the over at Riverside Cigar Lounge across the river, yeah, uh, in Indiana, and we've become pretty good friends since then. So, gotten a cigar like now. I have a big. Closet humidor, I like this <laughs> yeah. like 2,800 cigars. You got Beehickey <laughs> showing up. <laughs> I have a couple of boxes of Behickies. Yeah. Yeah. I like 54s. But, okay. Uh
2: 56 is a little too big. 52 doesn't last. You're long like enough, so. you sound like just like Drew Colzey. He's got
1: really <laughs> oh, he's got all this <laughs> stuff in his He and, he he and I have talked about cigars before, but the two of us are so freaking busy. Yeah. We we see each other in passing in like the airport or right. at a at a you know a seminar event and like, oh, we need to get together. Yeah, and then six months later at another event, damn it, we didn't get together. Let's try, let's let's plan on (laughs) that. Um, I got off on a huge tangent, so (laughs) sorry, but I mean, it sounds like you got a kick ass collection
0: that's growing. That's, I mean, it's yeah, like you said, we should probably befriend each other and try to figure out the time to hang
1: out, but we'll see. My wife wants to get out of the basement. We got to drink it and smoke it to get rid of it. (laughs) You know, bottles you need to open. I I love opening that's one of the nice things, you know. So that's like about 1600. Over a thousand of those are open. That's awesome. So I'm not, you know, you know, we may buy something on the. We always buy it legally, always. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you we know, we're not going to try to sell it and hold it as an <laughs> investment. No, let's open it. I, I bought it for a reason. We want yeah. to try it. We want to see what it was. Um, you know, again, more recently, we're back to the the prohibition stuff, the pre-prohibition stuff, the you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, some of those earlier decades. What was different about whiskey? You know, that was kind of the whiskey heyday in the, I guess, the 50s, Absolutely, more or less, yeah. uh, 50s and 60s, you know, it's different now. Why? So, you and know, my just... dad and I are working on those projects. So one of the nice things about working at Placardi, they've been around 155 years. Yeah, They have a lot of history and data be from the rum side, but also from the whiskey side. Trial and errors and stuff the, tri- yeah. yeah. And, and, and what, you know, they've been doing a lot of research and, and development for a hundred plus years. So they have a lot of data on what the industry was like, the spirits industry as a whole, what was different between now and then, regulations, what were different. You know, why did why did whiskeys taste different from a, you know, you want to talk about climate change or-, or Types know, of, I mean, people have uh, said that types of wood that's say- that Well, that atomic picture. bombs. You're talking about radiation and trees, things like, like, I'm like, really? That makes a difference? Yeah, the the, <laughs> the GC, the chemist who's earned the GC uh, mass spec is going, yeah, you can actually see that kind of stuff. It just baffles me that, that minutiae of detail can well, whether it is making a difference, we're not exactly sure, but it's it's measurable, so um, you can assume it might be right, so you're you're head of processing right or production, I'm
2: sorry, production does mm-hmm. all this most production guys, they want to keep things the same, like let's streamline, let's process oh, like to screw around with shit. like so <laughs> you don't mind like just. Trying all this different shit, you know, instead of like, all right, we need to get our process systems, fine tuned it, quick, bringing all these other ideas.
1: So, as far as like Angel's Envy, you know, our port-finished bourbon goes, you, you want it to be consistent. And yeah, you want to streamline your processes so you can get, you know, as we expand, get new people trained, the scale up on the volume and, and be able to handle that. So, you do have to, you know try to make it as consistent as you can. You want this range of bourbon, this mash bill, this yeast, this type of barrel, this warehouse. There's still variances that go into that. You know, maybe we'll play around with entry proofs uh, like we're doing here. You know, most of our bourbon that we purchased and then had contract produced for us and that we're producing now goes into the barrel at 125. But now we're starting to play with lower entry proofs between 103, 100 and 103, like very low. Um, Why? Just to try something different? I mean, what, what's the so idea? So the... The thought behind it, and one thing my grandfather was very adamant on, actually, one of the reasons, you know, Woodford goes in the barrel at 110 is that you're adding less, after aging, you know, four, five, six, whatever years, you're adding less water to bring it down to your bottling proof. So, you're, in theory, diluting, you know, those concentrated flavors you're getting from the wood and during maturation less. Um, so, the, the theory is, you know, you, you're able to have the, the concentration of that flavor more, Um there's some science to back that up. We're still we're still running a lot of experiments behind that, and we're trying to quantify that, um, which is hard because it's a perception. Right. But you can get there – there's a perception and there's measurable data too. So you got to bring both of those together to present the argument because it costs a lot more money. Yeah,
2: because you, you know, present
1: that to the – you know, If we're making – The bean counters. 38 say, barrels a day it. at 125 proof. Well, when you do 100, 103 proof, you're making 45, 46, 47 barrels. Well, so, you know, okay, it's only 10 barrels. Well, a barrel is almost 200 bucks. So, mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple grand every single day you're spending. And then, so once a week, you have another extra trailer you're sending out. And then uh, a full trailer of barrels in the warehouse every, every week. And then at, at one point, now you have to have an, an extra entire warehouse just to support that lower, uh, the lower proof of entry. And is the payoff really a better product? And our opinion is yes, it will be. And, and we're trying to demonstrate that so that the, you know, because the, the bean counters are always going to question, well, why can't you go in 130 proof? Yeah. Well, because I'm not legally allowed to. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So what, what can we do to, you know, to, to make the profitability? Because everybody understands this is a business. You know, while it's a family business, even Bacardi as a family business, you know, people still need to make money. You know, yeah. it, it's, we're not, well, I'm sure everyone would love to just make it for the fun of it. People want to be able to, you know, go home and buy presents for their kids for their birthdays oh, and things, and pay their, you know, mortgage and have a nice car and all of that. And the company still mm-hmm. needs to make money. Yeah. Um, the Bacardi family would still like to have, you know, some profitability oh. coming from this company that built over the last 150 years. I think so. Um. So is the is the the cost of doing a lower proof? Does the benefits of of that we hope to be a better whiskey outweigh the cost? And that's what we're trying to show everybody from a perception and a physical bean counter perspective as well. Yeah. So, you're right. Our costs went up 2%, but the whiskey's better. Yeah. And that's a nice thing about being with Bacardi. You know, instead of a publicly owned company, a publicly owned company, it doesn't matter. Whiskey's better. Well, unless you can prove it via a sale, we've got shareholders to answer to. Bacardi has their eyes open. All right. Whiskey's better. Oh, this does taste better. Yeah. Did it cost a us more a percent bacon. more? That's okay. We made a better product, and the company is better off for it. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of really refreshing. You know, as we went through this whole process of them acquiring us, that was a fear of, well, they're gonna, you know, everything's gonna be about pinching a penny. And while sometimes it is, yeah, I mean, again, they're a business, but they're willing to spend money to do things the right way. And we're hoping this is one of those things we can show them is the right thing. So, so that was it was, a long-winded thought. On no, 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 it's fine. A, it's, it's fine, fine as a host. It, yeah, and I, I want to also kind of touch
0: on a little bit because you know you had mentioned a lot of. Trying, trying different spirits, trying different, uh, you know, competing uh, spirits so you can be able to test it against your own. However, you all are a, a port barrel finished brand, yes. right? Is the idea of experimenting with a lower barrel proof, distilling your own now, the idea to come out with one day a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey that isn't a port finished?
1: More than likely. So angels envy as it stands. I, our, our overarching theory and, and you know overarching uh, almost policy and, and what we expect Angel Envy is for now always going to be a finished whiskey whether it's a bourbon or a rye or an American whiskey or whatever it is it's always going to be double mature double aged you know finished whatever you want to call it and that's what that whole brand was built on Louisville Distilling is the parent company of Angel's Envy. So, Bacardi didn't buy Angel's Envy. They bought Louisville Distilling Company. Mm-hmm. Louisville Distilling Company can do a lot of different things. You know, my dad and I have, have, have talked about, so we, st- we just started distilling in September of 2016. So, we're already adding up the days. All right, so into 2020, we can release a bottled and bond whiskey. Well, that probably won't be Angel's Envy, but it could be Louisville Distilling. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, Louisville Distilling can release a bottled and bond DSPKY20022, bottled and uh, distilled there. Um, so, you know, we think about things like that. Um, so, so yeah, the finishes are important, but certainly there's a, a path and there's an expectation, at least from my dad and I, and, and we hope, you know, Bacardi and, and the whole marketing team to, all right, yeah, the Angel Envy is finished, but Louisville ceiling has the opportunity to do some of these unique things and be a straight, straight whiskey company as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. So That's whether we get there or not, we'll see, but yeah, we, yeah. Well, I think we'll probably have another podcast again. By More then. than likely. we
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, a three-year schedule.
1: Yeah.
0: So I guess talk about a little bit because, you know, your role has shifted a lot from just having to worry about a co-packer with bottling to now also covering distillation, right? So what did it take for you to get up to speed to understand how I can manage that as well underneath my umbrella? If you're anything like me, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com/ bourbon all lowercase and go to shopify.com/ bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today shopify.com/ burbon You know, your role has shifted a lot from just having to worry about a co-packer with bottling to now also covering distillation, right? So what did it take for you to get up to speed to understand how I can manage that as well underneath my umbrella?
1: Trial and error. <laughs> um, fortunately and unfortunately, um, I, I was able to, you know, I did some internships. I worked at um, Catoctin Creek, did an internship there They're in um Loudoun County, Virginia. Scott and Becky um, were were very gracious enough to let me come in there and try to destroy some of their equipment because I didn't know what <laughs> I was doing. Um, and so it's like driving a stick shift. Don't turn that knob. Your, yeah, yeah. And they're a very manual process, or at least they were when I was there. It was years ago. Um, so I, you know, I, I learned a lot from them. I think Becky's got a chemical engineering degree. Um, she's the master distiller there. You know, another, another little family-owned company. Really, really great people. And you know. One nice thing about our industry is, yeah, there are secrets, but everybody's pretty open about things mm-hmm. and more than willing to share knowledge. So fortunate I was able to to work with them. You know, while I was I worked at Woodford Reserve for a little bit as well, so uh, I was able to work with Dave Shurik and, and learn things from him. Um, having the experience of not necessarily distilling with my grandfather, but talking about concepts and theories and and you know research what he did while he was at ron forman and what what worked and what didn't and oh here's some dumb idea we kind of put on the boilerplate but i want to go back to do and do it again now that we have the capacity um are things we try here and then you come here in this new facility with i mean really me not having any applicable uh applicable applicable (laughs) applicable there you go (laughs) (laughs) applicable man it's been a long day yeah Uh, applicable um distillation experience other than some you know theoretical knowledge and a little bit of hands-on to all right here's some some new equipment run it (laughs) (laughs) here's the manual yeah what manual Uh, get on here here are some some uh piping and instrument drawings and the flow how this flow is supposed to work and kevin curtis who was our um, operations manager at the time you know he had a lot of experience at brown foreman he knew what he was doing but you know, he had me who was new and then three new distillery operators who had rolled some barrels and done some bottling. And that was it. <laughs> so we we muddled around and we screwed some stuff up. And we, man, I'm going to get yelled at for saying this. We had the fire department here more than once. No <laughs> fires, no fires. A lot, of, a lot of boil overs. We actually... Boiled out of our cooker in our first week of operations because we didn't know what we were doing. We figured out very very quickly how to stop that from happening, but yeah. uh, trial and error, fortunately and unfortunately. Yeah. So we we know probably more than anybody who what not to do has started. Yeah, who, anybody who who works in an operating distillery and never started it up. We know the limitations of our equipment more than any of them because we went beyond those limitations and we set the limitations at that point. So, when designing this, did you all did you have input
2: on the design or? Oh, or of course, kind of, yeah. yeah. So, my grandfather. How did I mean, you know how you wanted to design?
1: Even though he passed away in 2013, so he actually passed away the week after I got married, and we had already kind of started the concepts of this. Um, we weren't 100 set on this site. Um, but we knew what the layout and the flow should be if we were to go into here and kind of the whole, again, the theoretical right. behind it. And, you know, we knew we wanted, uh, you know, a Vendome column that was designed to do certain things and pull the reflex back in certain places. And, um, certain, you know, we, we knew we wanted to have a cooker match our fermenter. We, we didn't want to do two or three cooks to fill one fermenter. Um, so we wanted to do more of a batch continuous distillation, um, you know, we knew the, So we knew the concepts behind that. Uh, we got involved, uh, a very good process engineering firm here in Louisville called VITOC. Um, they help a lot of distilleries. They do work for, for makers and O.Z. You know, Tyler and a lot of other people that they keep under wraps too. Those are the ones they publicly talk about. Um, so they have a lot of really good distilling experience. Uh, several of their staff members were engineers at distilleries for, for companies, distilling companies. And so we used some of their expertise. All right, here's what we want to do. How do we do it? And they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, your your dynamic fluid flow is X, Y, Z. And if you have a 90-degree turn, you need to have this size of a pump, and your fermenter size is this, and this is your beer flow, and boom, there's your output on your still. <laughs> Wonderful. Build that for us. So you, you take that, and you bring it to the the piping guys, the guys who install the piping, and, you know, here's what we want to do. Let's lay it out, put it in, and over the course of three years, you, you build a distillery, and then you find out, well, that wasn't the way we wanted to do it. So you <laughs> got some stuff out, and you put it back in, because nobody's perfect, Yeah, you know, Okay. It all makes sense on yeah. paper. Well, you know what? And once you, you, fired you, you crazy up, engineers, I know you're listening. The math says it should work, but in real life sometimes yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. Um, you know, well, if it's a 90-degree angle, it works exactly like this. Well, I'm sorry, with my little protractor, it's a 91-degree angle. <laughs> well, I didn't run that equation so I can't do that. You know, it's it, you have it's, it's trial and error. You have to you have to get it going and go, "Man, that pump was a little undersized." And that's why you build an extra 10% capacity in things because it may be a little undersized, with without it. Um, I've, I've, where, yeah, how do we good. get on this? <laughs> right, so now we're talking about the design, but yeah. I think you covered it all. Yeah, but I, I
0: kind of want to dive into it a little bit because you know you're you're hiring the design company and you're you're building this up. However, getting the right people, I think, is the hard part of of any job. So, what was what was the onboarding process of trying to find the right people to help staff this facility and everything like that? Because I know that it's it's not a an easy job market to find the right people to right have the right fit to make sure that because you're you, not the only distillery popping up right now. It's right. Not, no. It's, it's, no. It's, it's, no, you have you competition. So all the talents, you know,
2: yep.
1: everywhere. Well, when we started, we were, you know, one of the early kind of inns in Louisville. Um, I guess it would have been in 2014. We hired, put our our our, our, our you know, help wanted to add, uh, for lack of a better term, for our two lead people. So we had a lead processing operator and we wanted a lead bottling operator because we were going to dump process whiskey and bottle whiskey. Um, so the guys that applied, Blake and Chad, Blake actually applied for bottling and Chad applied for processing along with other people, a lot of other people, actually like a hundred something people. Um, and we got down to these last two guys and Kevin and I were responsible for hiring and then and then managing them. And we went, well... Chad would be great for the bottling, even though he applied for processing. (laughs) And Blake, man, he'd be really great for processing, even though he applied for bottling. So we offered them the opposite job that they applied for. And and those were our first two operations hires. Um, Then we hired a few people just to help us roll barrels. So we bought our own warehouse right about the same time. uh, One of the old Yellowstone warehouse down on 7th Street. Uh, Refurbished it and got our DSP. And we're like, well, you know, our barrels are stored all over the state. Let's try to consolidate some. So we started moving in three trailers of barrels a day. So two hundred seventy barrels a day, the three of us and Kevin rolling barrels. And <laughs> oh my goodness, you've never had a workout until yeah. you've had to roll. No gym ever. And this would have been in. like November and mm-hmm. December. Yeah, two hundred seventy barrels off a truck, pull them over, roll them in, roll them on a rick. Learn how to clock. We learned how to clock barrels and get in position to have a bung up. You better say what what a clock is. What a clock. Here. So uh, when you're rolling barrels into a rick. Uh, in our case, our Rick holds 29 barrels. And instead of putting half the barrels in on one side, and on the other half on the other side, you want to position the barrel, uh, pretend the, the barrel head, the side of the barrel is a clock. So 12 o'clock being where the bung is, 6 o'clock being the opposite side of the bung. You want to position that bung so it's in a clock position, whether it's you know one hour, two hour, three hour, so on and so forth. So when you roll it down the rick, you don't have to touch it again until it stops and the bung's facing up at 12 o'clock. Mm. So in our warehouse, uh, it's, you really have to do four and a half hours. So about, about, uh, I guess, what does that come to? About a third of a turn, right? Yeah. About, about we'll a your, little, we'll little over forward. a third of a turn <laughs> each barrel. So we, we time, so the first barrel maybe at 12 o'clock, then the the uh, second barrel is at four o'clock, and then the next barrel is at eight o'clock. And then to make up for the two half 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 an hour as you miss, the next one needs to be at one o'clock. That makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Now yeah, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. wonderful sense. So <laughs> it's called clocking a barrel. Anybody who's rolled barrels is probably familiar with that term.
2: It's new so, for me. Yeah, yeah. I have not rolled barrels,
1: so <laughs> you know, watch. The, go down to like the, uh, the the bourbon festival, and they have the barrel rolling competition, mm-hmm. and they're judged on if they can clock those barrels and get those bungs straight up. 50 feet down the rick or whatever it is. Right. So um, so doing that 270 times a day, man, yeah, you don't need gym membership. You're tired. Kevin gave up about two weeks in. His, his knees were given out. He was <laughs> over 50. So he was like, nope, I'm done. You young guys take care of it. Yeah. So we hired, uh, actually, we hired two of my brothers, Connor and Andrew. Um, we brought in some temporary workers, some of whom we eventually hired because um, we just figured, oh, we don't, you know, we don't have our bottling facility ready yet. We only need to move in. 15,000 barrels. Um, so let's let's get, you know, do a few trailers a day and get it done. Um, so we started with temp workers through a temp agency because we didn't know how many people we need. And slowly we brought people on, we put an ad out: we need some bottling people. And then from there, it was a lot of word of mouth. All right, you know, you, do you we need to hire somebody. Oh, I, you know, my, my nephew's brother's cousin's sister's mother wants a job. Come okay, on, come on in. We we'll do an interview. You're not a felon. You know, you have no DUIs. You can you stand for? Eight, <laughs> can you stand for eight hours? Are you not going to steal from me? All right, go. Uh, and sometimes they did steal from you, and you had to deal with that. It, you know, it, it, <laughs> you know, we. It's it, unfortunate. You know, that's just part of people. Yeah. Uh, people right. management. That's actually the hardest part of this industry is people. Yep. You know, if 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 you could build a computer to do this, most people would just do it with a computer yeah, but, but you can't, you can't you can't so so you can. some people do it <laughs> right. You know the whiskey's a little you know, not the same. Um, it's the people aspect. that's the hardest and the best part of this. yeah, um, when we so when we started, we were able to get people and we just had a bottling and processing. open the distillery. Well, what do we do? We poach from ourselves. So we let our um, we let all of our employees think we had like fifteen or sixteen at the time apply, hey, we're gonna have three distillery operator positions open up in September 2016. And really, we we ended up hiring them earlier than that so they could see some of the startup learn some of the things before that. Sweep and clean. uh, A lot of cleaning. (laughs) Especially your own construction project. Um, So we opened that up and we had really what th- three of our top employees applied and, and ended up getting the job. So we took three of our best employees from our other operations to move into the distillery, <laughs> which didn't cripple us in processing and blending, but forced us to go find more people. So we did that. And then in the distillery, we had three guys that had processing, warehousing, bottling knowledge, but no distillation at all. So, you know, as I referred to later, a lot of trial and error with them. And then eventually we moved processing and bottling here, so moved to the bigger tanks from the small tote tanks, the ISO tanks, um, you know, those are 500 gallons to the 5,000-gallon tanks we have and an eight-barrel dump trough from a three-barrel dump trough. And then you're filling barrels and putting them in the warehouse and taking them out of the warehouse and all the port barrel handling and everything. So, our processing team went from two people to three people. And the warehouse team went from four people to two people because we weren't moving a bunch of barrels, uh, age barrels in the warehouse. You're just moving new-filled barrels. So, you know, you move people around, shelf people around, give them more experiences, and then all right now our bottling capacity's picked up you know our brand was selling 40,000 cases now we're selling 60,000 now we're selling 80,000 100,000 cases whatever it is you know we still didn't want to have to work a bunch of overtime or five or six or seven days a week so you hire some more people you run your line a little faster now you've got 12 people on the bottling line and then your bottling manager gets uh, gets an amazing offer at a competitor and he calls you up and says, "I got to take this," and you're like, "Well, crap! <laughs> now we gotta so, start all start so over." So. so now we start all over, um, and that's kind of what we're going through, you know, now and, and over the last several months. Like you said, you know, sounds like control chaos. Rabbit hole is is you know getting ready to open. Old foresters doing their thing. Peerless copper and kings. Um, Bullets investing, Diageo investing tons and tons of money in, in the area. Yeah, uh, and then you've got the big guys too. Heaven you know, Hills expanding. Heaven the Hills expanding. They're what the like the the largest single distillery in the state now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just while while their distillery is set up to run with less people than ours because they have a lot more automation. They still need people there, and well it's it's really nice that our guys get great experience and then go, <laughs> now I'm going to want to go work for that big company over yeah, there. thanks for training us. Me, <laughs> we work, you know, we're not just Louisville Distilling, we're Bacardi too. And, and you know, here's all these wonderful things. Well, what's going to soon happen is, oh yeah, we do work for Bacardi. I've got all this experience. I want to go work in Puerto Rico now at the rum distillery. I do that. Man, either. how do yeah. you say no to that? Like, um, I, I don't have a whole lot to offer you other than we don't have hurricanes and <laughs> we have snow. Um, you know, so, so even four sister companies, we haven't had it happen yet. We actually, but we, I don't want to say poached, we received the benefits of several other Bacardi plants. So our quality guy, Mike, um, came from Jacksonville where Bacardi does their bottling for North America. So he was a quality supervisor down there. Uh, he had an opportunity to grow, came here. Um, our, our operations director also came from Jacksonville, and he's worked at several Bacardi sites. So, we have a lot of great benefits from them. But what's going to happen is as our team grows and becomes experienced, their skills are going to be needed elsewhere as well. So, it people are the the, the worst and the best part of the industry. Absolutely. That, so. so, another question was just about the distillation today. So, how many barrels are you actually pumping out of here a day then? So, when we started, uh, we were lucky to get like 32 Uh, you know, our yields were terrible. We're, you know, we didn't have contamination. We were making good whiskey. It just wasn't as efficient as we'd like. Um, we've slowly increased that, uh, to an average of 36. And that would have been early, I guess, early 2017, maybe like, you know, February, March, 2017. And, uh, we've improved from there. So, um, we hired a new operations manager. Kevin left us to go work with another company. There you go. People, (laughs) people leave and go, go to work for the next big, awesome company. You know, we had a lot of support from him, but you know, he moved to a new one. So we brought somebody else in. So we hired Connor, who's our uh, new operations manager. He was at Woodford and Brown Foreman for a very long time, many, many years. We brought him in and we're, we're working with him to better refine our efficiency, improve our yields, um, you know, you guys mentioned early on, you know, we're a very, very clean distillery. We've been open for, a lot, what, a year and a half plus. Um, we still get reviews on TripAdvisor and Yelp. That's the cleanest distillery that I've been in. It's yeah. And we take pride in that. You know, you guys, guys kind of joked about mopping the floors. We mop the floors every day. Yeah, every, every single day. Um, and people feel, man, this is tedious. Uh, it's just busy work until they see the feedback from people who have nothing to do with us. Holy crap, this place is clean.
2: Well, yeah, it makes it more, like,
1: my wife probably, if we went to like the
2: Buffalo Trace Hard Hat tour, she would not like climb those stairs and she would be like, yeah. This place is a dump. But, and but, then you come up here yeah. and it's like, And they're not, that's just the yeah. series,
1: just how many hundred, hundred oh, plus yeah, years exactly. old. And, and old. it's not that it's dirty, it's just, it's just old. Right. And those things that build up, but it's not their perception, so, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so we're trying to delay some of that yeah. buildup, but even within the Bacardi organization. So one of the guys who helped us manage this project, he does project management for Bacardi, you know, $100 million plus projects. And he came back a year after he left, you know, he was here for the duration of the project. And when, when we were completed, he left and went back to his job in Puerto Rico and came back for our, I guess, like one year anniversary, something like that. And he went, holy crap, this place is still clean. <laughs> like it, it's an expectation of you're a plant, you're going to get dirty, but we take a lot of pride in and keeping it perfect. And part of that is building efficiency. So cleanliness, Keeps bacteria and dirt and dust and other things from getting into your fermentations, which lowers your yield. Um, being able to properly clean and, and having good temperature control and good yeast management, um, and you know, I got back to cleaning, making sure your tanks right. are clean before you dump and dump the next tank or go into the next one. That has allowed us to get to the yield we're at now. We're, you know, on a on a thirteen and thirteen thousand five hundred gallon fermenter, give or take. Um, we're producing like twenty six hundred proof gallons, so um, more or less about 37, 38, 39 barrels a day, and that's one fermenter. Right. So nice.
0: I, I would imagine to say that you're probably dumping
1: more barrels than that per
0: day as well. So is this?
1: Is no, this a lot. We're filling a lot more. So we're dumping for this year's volume we're filling new barrels for five or six years down the road's volume. And, you know, we hope to grow 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever percentage a year. So, if we want to grow, say, 15% next year, and then the year after is another 15, well, that's 15% of 115% Hmm. of this year. So, it's a compounding growth as well. Yeah. So, we may be filling, you know, 40 barrels a day now. We're only dumping, say, I don't know, 20 or 30. Okay. Um, Because our volume needs now don't match mean, what we're gonna to to do in four or five years, which we're filling for now. Yeah. I mean, and then and then you have to take do into account evaporation. So we have a full barrel now and five years and dump it, it's you know seventy percent of what it was too. So yeah, I mean I kind of looked at it the thought process of is is this the
0: the goal that you're now gonna get yourself off of the uh you know, no more sourcing,
1: right? Is is that the, the ultimate goal? That's the, the ultimate kind of- goal, absolutely. But you don't want to go with cold turkey either because, you know, while the guys we've been contracting with, you know, we've been we've been managing the grains, making sure it's the right grain, the right yeast, all of our mash bills, you know, even specifying temperature profiles for fermentation and distillation proofs and what they pull off and don't pull off and heads and tails cuts and all of that. It's different equipment. The whiskey is going to be a little bit different. Um You know, we do send them our barrels, so we're able to use our Kelvin barrels. You know, we use Kelvin for ninety nine percent of our maturation. Um, Great people to work with. Barrel gives you a lot of that flavor, but the distillate going in it, if it's tweaked a little bit, it could it it could could be a little different down the down the road. So we're still having some not as much as we used to. You know, when we weren't distilling, but the goal is over the course of several years. Blending in the contract production with our current production, so if there is a profile change, it's very long and slow, and uh, you know, a gentle rolling hill more rather than more just subtle, off yeah. a cliff or right. you know, something like, like that. Yeah, so. you could see you could see a gradual progression of the span of a yeah. few years. And, or the, and like that's that. you know, fortunately, we we've thought about that way ahead of time back when the brand was born. Um, that's part of the expression. Novelty is each batch is slightly different. It's nuanced. Things change from batch to batch to batch. And that's okay. It's part of our brand. We're not a every bottle of whiskey across. We're not a Budweiser where every bottle of Bud is brewed exactly the same no matter where it was done and it tastes exactly the same. We're going to be different from time to time. So it's part of our brand story too. It's part of whiskey in general. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You can't replicate all this. (laughs) this,
0: (laughs) So Kyle, you know, we're kind of coming to the top of the hour here, but I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show uh, you know, diving into this, you know, I had even had more questions written oh, down. Oh, yeah. That, that, <laughs> yeah, but we weren't <laughs> well, being Well, I respect. just kept talking. We'll, we'll do a part two. No, <laughs> it's great. It's, <laughs> no, it was interesting. It's the, it's the greatest, greatest excuse to be a host because we ask you the question. Oh, you just oh, go. You just go and it's, it's, and it's great. Well, good. Makes well, a, and
1: yeah, and the way you explain things, it
2: yeah, kind of makes it all come together. So, no, I think you did a great job of explaining all the process and designing and building because this, this place is an artwork. It's beautiful,
1: and it's cool how to see it all came together. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a 115-plus-year-old building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, man— It wasn't cheap, I know. <laughs> the building itself was really cheap. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. we bought it a surplus. It, but the restoration— That's where it Looking became. back, may, man, do we really <laughs> want to do a restoration <laughs> project— yeah. Now yeah, it was awesome. The place is beautiful. Um you know, we've had people call it the, <laughs> the cathedral of urban which I think is a little a little a little way off the scale but <laughs> we you know walking it, in man. with the with the you know, double tall ceiling and the it's the Douglas angel firm, thing, you know. thing, it's really it's really a neat place to be. Yeah.
2: and I took great comfort in cuz I'm a small business owner too, you know, talking about getting all these new machines and screwing up and like when we first started like we didn't know what the hell we were doing and yep. we fucked up everything and it's like it's nice knowing that y'all go through that too oh, Absolutely. It, when you yeah. see this you're like man they have yeah, everything we put together yeah we 27 million dollars in this
0: and we still screwed stuff up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly so no it's pretty cool well good deal so uh, Kyle if anybody wants to contact you or reach you or
1: just find you here at the distillery how do they do that oh man <laughs> don't do it uh, um, <laughs> just, just I already work about about seventy hours a week, so just mm-hmm. come on to the distillery. Pompey, I'm <laughs> usually here. Um, we're we're you know running seven days op- seven days a week operation in the distillery. We have shutdowns and holidays and things, but um, it won't be long this summer. We'll be running around the clock, so I will be here to the chagrin of my wife a lot more than I should be. Um, but yeah, you can walk in the front door, ask for me if I'm available. I'll come down.
0: There you go. Simple. Easy enough. So Kyle, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show. Yep. Uh, Since he doesn't have any social media, you can follow us on social media. So you can find Bourbon Pursuit on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Make sure you follow or subscribe on iTunes, write iTunes reviews. That's what helps really get this brand out there. And also, if you do like the show, support us on Patreon. It actually helps us grow. So dot com slash Bourbon Pursuit.
2: Yeah. And then any show suggestions, feedback, comments, we love hearing from you all. Giving us new ideas of, on where to take the show. So we appreciate that, and uh, we'll see you next time.